Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey guys, it's Anna David with the After Party Pod podcast. How are you? Recording this on a Monday, which is a as good a day as any to record an intro. What is going on with you guys? I'm just thinking if there's anything going on with me to tell you. There's nothing. I mean, things are good. Got no complaints. A lot easier to talk about what's going on when there are complaints. I was in Wyoming last week. Actually, my flight was canceled to Wyoming, and I don't fly Great Lakes Airlines. I, I Honestly, if you work there and you're listening, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to malign you, but this is what happened. I went to check in the day before, and I got this notification, can't check in. And so then I looked at my itinerary, and though I was flying from Burbank to uh, Denver and from Denver to Sheridan, Wyoming, there's just no Sheridan to Wyoming flight. Just wasn't there. So I called United, who it had been booked through, and they said, ah, oh, you know what? That flight was canceled. Weren't enough people for it. They didn't. Oh, Great Lakes should have told you. I don't, not our fault. Anyway, it was this kind of chaotic thing where it's a last minute flight to Billings, Montana, which in case you don't know, is almost a two hour drive from Sheridan, Wyoming. And, and I did it. And it was actually probably the highlight of the trip because it was sort of a pretty drive. And who gets to drive from Montana to Wyoming? I was, I was super excited about that. The talk, I'm not going to lie, wasn't flooded with people. Talking at, to kids, uh, to college students, who often don't feel like kids, they often feel more mature than I feel I am, um, can be so rewarding. But a lot of these schools, then other kids show up, and you sort of get there, and you know they talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. That's a little bit what it feels like. Uh, this was because it was looking like it was just going to be the girl who booked me. And I was going, well, do you ever just not go ahead with the talk? Just because what's the point? And she said, well, we've never been. I mean, we've been underattended. But anyway, there were, we were in this sort of like hall. There was pizza and a pool table. And so I literally went up to some boys and I said, will you just come they were like, eh, I don't know. I'm not that interested. So I bribed them. I had copies of Party Girl with me that I bought because I ran out of the ones the publisher gave me years ago. And I gave them to two people in order to get them to come. And then there was a third who wanted one. And I only had two with me. And so that person asked for money, which I would have given them, but they came anyway. Lucky me. Anyway, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you do because, you know, there is um, there is accepting the things we cannot change. And this was something I could not change. But, you know, and there is the whole, well, you know, there ended up being six kids there. Sure, three of them were bribed in order to be there, basically. One of them was required to be there. But 
who knows if what you say can really spark something in people. I don't know. I, I welcome any thoughts about it. Speaking of that, I'm so appreciating your emails and your um, reviews and tweets. It's so, so, so nice. I got an email this last week that was so nice. I don't ever want to um, out anybody. Maybe they don't even want their first name out there as a listener. But this woman, let's call her JD, wrote me the nicest email um, about how she's been listening to this since its inception, and it's helped her. And when she couldn't sleep, she would listen to it. Anyway, I hope that you don't feel outed, JD. I'm so grateful to you. So keep, keep sending emails and, and all of that. It means so, so, so much. So what do I want to tell you? I want to tell you about today's guest. Um, you probably know about him. You're probably maybe listening to this podcast for the first time because of him. His name is Tommy Rosen. And he's a yoga teacher and recovery expert. He has been sober over 20 years, excuse me, 23 to be precise. And he has a fascinating story. He lives in Venice with his gorgeous wife. He's gorgeous too. And they're yoga teachers and they're kind of perfect looking. I'll be honest, but, but I think they're also beautiful inside. That's what I think. Um, he's a Hatha and Kundalini yoga teacher. And um, his experience was he got sober and he was sober a while. And then he sort of hit a wall. He was doing all the, the addicty stuff that addicts might continue to do even when they're not drinking and drugging. And he hit a bottom with that and he changed his life. And he talks about that and the guru that led him to this new life. And what his mission is now is to share what he learned with the masses. And he's done a really good job of it. He started this movement called Recovery 2.0, Beyond Addiction. And it started with a, an online series about two years ago. I was in the first one. It was a complete honor. There are people, Gabor Mate was in it, um, some very well-known spiritual leaders. And, and it was great. And he has continued to do it. And then he wrote a book called Recovery 2.0, Overcoming Addiction and Thriving Through Yoga, Meditation, and the 12 Steps. And that was recently published by Hay House. And now he's going around and, and talking to people about it. The book is wonderful. I'm a book snob, frankly. You know, if people aren't writers their whole life, like I'll read, I'll read a book and I'm like, this is great. He really, he really, really hit it. I learned, um, a lot from reading it and I learned a lot from talking to him. So that's the chat you're going to be able to listen to right now. So this is Tommy Rosen. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? And we're all good to go, Tommy. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks, Anna. It's great to be here. It's we've had we've known each other for a, for a little while. Okay, I was just telling you all the ways you've influenced my life. Mm-hmm. But the very first one is that Cafe Gratitude. You were, that was the first time I ever went to Cafe Gratitude. Oh, gratitude. That, well, I remember that. that. That's years ago now. Yeah, probably four years ago. Yeah. 
And the thing is, I go there constantly. And I remember going there with you and just going, Cafe Gratitude? Like, what <laughs> is this place? What do you mean? Like, what are these dishes called? Yes. And I just thought it was so weird and never imagined I'd end up going there all the time. Yeah. Those are, those are weird and wonderful people. Yeah. Doing good stuff. Oh, yeah. Feeding us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so interesting. I mean, that's sort of all my sober friends do is, is go to Cafe Gratitude. All the time. I love it. I love it. And so I first became aware of you through, through Mastin, Kip, Hmm. through, um, why am I blanking on what his, his thing is called? The Daily Love. The Daily Love. I read about you. Yes. And I said, who is that handsome man? That was the first thing. I'm very shallow. (laughs) Then I said, what is he doing? And, and it was when I worked at The Fix and we met and started talking. Yes. But the truth is, I don't know the details of your story. Mm. I just know that it doesn't... Well, I look at you, and I'm sure people say this all the time, and I cannot imagine mm. you as a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an active one. Yes, yes, yes. These days, I, I even get... I, I can't imagine you ever having smoked a cigarette. That, too. That's actually you know. weirder to me. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's a compliment. It's a big compliment to hear yes. that. Yes. Which, which means that there's been a transformation, and that the way I used to be... Uh, which was, you know, so terribly caught in addiction in so many ways and, and hurting myself in so many ways and hurting a lot of other people in so many ways that there's been a transformation from that time. And so it's a compliment to hear that. Well, and so you started young and food was your first, which is, again, impossible to imagine. Right, right. Uh, yeah, in, in my figure. Yes. The, the, the plague... The, the food addiction in my life, which was sugar addiction, uh, really played out for me in not heaviness or obesity, but it, it led to weakness and being too, too thin. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Actually malnourished as a kid. Really? But so, with sugar? With sugar. We're just, just an atrocious diet that was sort of fueled by sugar addiction. Uh-huh. It's all I went after. So, you know, uh, breads, pastas, pizza... Um, meats, uh, you know, French fried potatoes, uh, a billion chicken McNuggets in my, in my childhood. But I don't think of those as sugars. So pastas and breads, all that stuff is breaking down into sugar. Right. That's okay. all sugar addiction right okay. there. Okay. Wow. And, and so, so where the sugar addict is going to look for something that can sustain him or her, you know, a little bit more than just literally straight up sugar. Right. Is you're going to go to things that break down very quickly into sugar. That's your breads, your pastas, your grains. So in my life today, in my recovery today from all that, I have to, I have to pay attention to that. But you, you don't abstain completely, or do you? I don't. I don't. No, I, I, um, I would say I'm in, a, I'm in a healthy dance with sugar these days. Right. But in my, in my childhood, it got the better of me, and I, I tell people that I bounced from one episode to the next, bouncing off the wall from one sugar event to the next. That well, really was my, my childhood. But, and then I would imagine, too, back then it's sugared cereals and all those things that they fed us back in those days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Frosted Flakes, oh. Fruity Pebbles, oh uh, Captain Crunch, Honeycomb, and not just sugar cereals, but like putting sugar on top of those cereals. <laughs> right, know? right. And, and I, I tell people the, the healthiest thing I had when I was a kid was fruit. Yeah. But fruit, of course, sugar. Had, yeah. <laughs> fruit, fruit had what I was really looking for. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you're from New York? From New York City. From the city? In the city. Okay, what part of the city? In the thick of it, uh, Manhattan. But where? Upper? Uh, Upper East Side, 70th Street and 3rd Avenue. Wow, okay. And, and so there you are, little Tommy, 
Do you, brothers and sisters? Two older sisters. Two older sisters. And, um, and your family, they worked, uh, you know, what business were they in? What were you guys doing in the city? You'll appreciate this. So my, my family historically was in the cocoa, coffee, and sugar business. <laughs> there are no accidents. And so from the turn of the century, literally the commodities businesses, and they focused in co- cocoa, coffee, and sugar. Interestingly, I never have had a cup of coffee in my life. Because I was raised by an English nanny in mm-hmm. the house who got me hooked to the gills on, on strong black tea and sugar. Which you ha- currently which I are drinking have at have a this cup moment. of right now. <laughs> right. Wow. And um, so no coffee, but right around Christmas every year, a knock would come at the door and we'd open it up and a 15-pound Hershey bar, literally 15 pounds of That's chocolate amazing. would present itself to us. And we would just be lunatics around this chocolate bar. Right. You know, it was like that thick and it was like that big. And So you're just breaking off pieces. Oh, I mean, and, and you're, you're, you basically realize that at the end of the holidays, you haven't really had a good meal. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a full meal because mm-hmm. you've been gorging yourself on chocolate and everything else sweet for, for right. a couple of weeks. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Awful. And so, and so that's what they did. You grew up, you were a kid going to school in Manhattan and then, and you started, you started doing drugs like young, 13 or something. Yeah. I found, I smoked, started smoking pot when I was 13 mm-hmm. and I found it and it was uh, absolutely, it was an upgrade to the drugs that I had been doing, mm-hmm. right? To the sugar and the mid afternoon American television and the pinball and video games. Mm-hmm. Like that's how I had distracted myself from this underlying sense of anxiety, right? right. Which I now refer to as that's really the ism, mm-hmm. right? That's really the addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I treated it with sugar, hyperactivity, distraction in any way I could get it. Mm-hmm. And then at 13, I found marijuana and it was like, oh my God, this is absolutely, this is the greatest find of my life. Yeah. I feel better. Do you remember that first time? Oh, I do. I was, uh, I smoked with a friend of mine. I had actually smoked pot a couple of times before, but not felt it. Right. And there was, seemed, seemed to be this little um, sort of period of where your body, I guess, adjusts and you start to feel... Or you weren't inhaling it right or oh, something or, like that. I, maybe I wasn't doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> sure you were doing it wrong. That's what the alcoholic's always doing. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but this time I got it right. And I was in a bodega in New York City and playing video games. And it was when I walked back out into the street from that bodega. And I, I was just like... This sense of adventure of relief and release mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and oh I can breathe and there's tightness in my chest is gone and the anger and the anxiety and the, this sort of emotional thing I carried around was gone and relieved mm-hmm. and I immediately I remember immediately and this is the classic addict immediately I thought I can do this anytime mm-hmm. I can do this anytime I want mm-hmm. I have power over this mm-hmm. and, and I really I really recognized that I was looking for power in my childhood and I really felt a great sense of powerlessness. So here I was like, wow, I can change the way I feel. And that was the first example of, of, of something really powerful that was up to me and me alone. See, that's interesting. Mm. That's, I think that's, an, I, didn't, I remember drinking was it for me. And I remember exactly the moment when I realized this is amazing. But I, well, and maybe well, as a kid growing up in the city with more access to things like that, I never had that, okay, I can do this anytime I want. It was just like, what is this special thing? Yes. You know, yeah. But so, so you, did you sort of have like free reign? Your parents weren't super strict. Oh no! Uh, actually, my my parents were unbelievably strict. Uh, my mother was sort of 
she she struggled a lot um, with drinking, and mm-hmm. and she was she was never a violent person in any way, shape, or form. But she was sort of a party girl, mm-hmm. and she could really tie one on. And I mean, I think she would be the first one to admit that for about twenty years there, she just distracted herself from the pain of her own childhood and her own life circumstances. And so I grew up in her home. She was sort of a little. She was just not fully present. Let's put it that way. She was physically present, mm-hmm. but not fully present. But you had this nanny. I had this nanny. We grew up, always had people like, like housekeepers slash nannies in the house who mm-hmm. sort of took care of us as children. She was super strict. But this was when I was a younger kid. At 13 years old, I mean, by that point, you know, my father was very overprotective. He was out of the house. He lived in New York City, but my parents were divorced. My relationship with my father was so tight and so close, and he was so adamant against any kind of drug use, adamant against it, that marijuana use sort of put a rift between me and him, and that was a serious consequence. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really blow that off. He knew, or? Uh, they, I mean, they knew. I think I told him in the early going, I felt so guilty. Yeah. And one day I gathered together all my paraphernalia and I was like, I can't do this anymore, you know? And I, I threw everything down the incinerator of my, my building, all my bongs and my, my papers and a little bit of pot that I had and all this. It's all gone down the incinerator. And I was like, oh, thank God that's over. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 13 years old. Thank God that's over now. I don't have to have this rift between me and my father. And, and I'm a good person again. Mm-hmm. I'm a good person again. Because mm-hmm. there was this sense of shame and weirdness around it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, four hours, five hours later, that, sent, that, that, that thing came over me again. And I was just like, wow, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfortable. And I'm so bored. Mm-hmm. And I'm so tired of me. And I'm so tired of my mind and this, these feelings. And what am I going to do? You know, and I think another maybe two hours. I lasted about two hours thinking about that. What am I going to do? And then I went right out, bought everything anew once again, and was <laughs> off to the races. Yeah. 13 years old. Yeah, and I, you know, that's the whole, like, cocaine. You did get into cocaine later? Oh, yeah. But, you know, that cocaine dance where you go, okay, I'm going to throw it in the garbage. And then you go, no, no, I'm going to throw it in the dumpster. And then you graduate to, I'm going to throw it in the toilet and, and flush it. And then you end up calling the dealer right afterwards and just wasting tons of money. Did that's you right. do that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did that. Um, cocaine and me, actually, I, I had graduated beyond all that to the point where I was like, I can't stop and I'm not going to even play this game anymore. Oh, you ne- So at that point, you didn't do that anymore? By a certain point. You know, at the beginning, it was, I think the, the total amount of resistance I gave was, well, I'm just going to do a few lines tonight. Mm-hmm. Like that was the resistance. Mm-hmm. And of course, the minute that drug entered my, my, my bloodstream, it, was, it, it just grabbed my nervous system in a way that nothing else had. Yeah. Completely dominated me. Yeah. It, it was my master, you know. Oh, I do know. I <laughs> I'm do. sorry that you know. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, though. I mean, so to me, it's like cocaine, you know, even with realizing I was an alcoholic, mm. I loved cocaine so much, and I never had that about anything else. Mm. So I really saw, I defined myself as a cocaine addict, very specifically, mm. and not anything else. Right. You know? A single-minded love affair like that is going right. to do that. Right, right. That's a very good way of putting it. But so, okay, so, but let's go back. So you're 13, you give it up, you start again the same day. Yep. Um, and then what happens? I, there was never a moment again where I wanted to give it up in, in a way that, that was compelling enough to actually do it. Right. Um, I tried, you know, later on in college, you know, well, what happened in the early going was I was really looking for adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm some 
depraved addict at age 13. It wasn't like that at all. I, I just, I was looking to feel better. Mm-hmm. I was looking for relief. And I was looking for adventure. I wanted to have fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to, I was very athletic and very kinetic. Mm-hmm. Even though I was small for my age. And like, as I'd said, sort of my, my peer group was starting to reach puberty. And I really wasn't. Oh, I was a small, small kid. Okay. And like whatever, whatever the nutrients are that you need to start growing up, I didn't have them. Do you think you literally prevented yourself from growing I, it? I'm sure of it. I'm sure that I, through my own sort of sugar addiction and food issues, um, I didn't nourish myself in a way where the body would, would do what it has to do. But at that time, that's how kids were eating. Well, I'd say at this time, they're eating the same way. <laughs> True, true. But there is more awareness. There are people like you and me with awareness who are having kids and raising them differently. It's true. It's true. There's more awareness now, but we have more obesity now and more, more, more heavy kids than we've ever had before. And uh, I I mean, I'm not sure that people in the 1970s, except maybe me, were drinking like 64 ounce, you know, sodas and things day after day after day. Like it's really dark what's happened today. But, but to your point, can I draw a direct correlation between diet and the way my body decided to grow? I don't know for sure. It's not science. I can only tell you that I, on many, many days, I didn't have enough energy to sustain me through a day. I didn't have the same stamina that my friends had physically. Mm-hmm. I was a big athlete, and so I had huge energy, huge bursts of energy, then I'd crash. Mm-hmm. Just this, this up and down addict thing. Mm-hmm. You know, get high, crash, get high, crash. That was sort of how it was. I loved sports, and uh, it really was my life. Like, I I really put my attention into baseball and football, basketball. um, You could play football in New York City? uh, Yeah, they had these leagues, uh, these afternoon leagues and stuff, and it was was pretty cool. And then I went off to boarding school, and there was, you know, football going on uh, up there. Again, I was really small for my age, so I wasn't, you know, thought of as a football player, you know, amongst my peers, although I I was fairly good at it. But the, the, the thing about the food was, and growing up, um, I had epic migraine headaches. I got sick all the time. I took a lot of antibiotics because I got sick mm-hmm. all the time. And so I tell people, you know, I believe that addiction is, a, is an opportunistic disease. And it's looking for weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, and it'll find it. And in me, like, if I look at my, my diet in my childhood, I, I'm, I'm the, I had the diet of a perfectly addicted child. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I found marijuana, it was like, of course, mm-hmm. of course I'm going to, this thing is going to come and save me and come and fix me. Mm-hmm. And then it advanced in, in terms of adventure. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, to fly around the galaxies. Mm-hmm. So psychedelic drugs, you know, entered the picture. Mm-hmm. I found the Grateful Dead and found a sense of commu- community and love and self-acceptance there, actually, that I'd never known in my lifetime. So there was a whole culture now of people that were doing what I was doing. And this was when you were at boarding school? Boarding school, yeah. 16 years old. I found the Grateful Dead. And, you know, my parents always said, they always thought, you know, oh, God, it's the, the Grateful Dead have done this to you. You know, it's all the Grateful Dead. And I'm like, no. You know, actually, the Grateful Dead probably saved my life in a few ways. Right. You know? Right. Like, gave me a, a real sense of family and community that I, I, I so desperately wanted and needed. It's interesting. People will say to those of us who sort of bottomed out in L.A., Hollywood, Los Angeles did this to you. And it's like, I always say, well, if I had been in Des Moines, Iowa, I would have found like the random ranch hand who dealt coke. I did this. L.A. had nothing to do with it. (laughs) I mean, it's it's easy access. Sure. 
but sure. you can't blame the place. Where can you go? Yeah. You know, where yeah. would one of us be able to go where if we were, you know, activated in our addiction, we would find it. A silent meditation retreat wouldn't be safe. There wouldn't be a silent meditation retreat. I can't do a silent meditation retreat now. My mom and I went to one and for a weekend at Spirit Rock, even to Spirit Rock, yeah. and we snuck into the woods to talk. Yes. I mean, that was it, like, whatever, 12 years of sobriety. You have to tell that story. You have to tell Jack Cornfield that story. It was so crazy because at the end of it, we're talking to every, all the other people and we're going, you guys snuck off and talked, right? And everyone's like, no. And it was the most peaceful three days of my life. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, mom, <laughs> we're horrible. But, um, but so, okay, so you, so did you actually go to shows and travel around and see the dead? Oh yeah, I followed, I followed the Grateful Dead for 12 years. Mm-hmm. I, no, I, I still was going to school. I still managed to sort of squeak by. Mm-hmm. But every chance I could take to join that circus and to be a part of that adventure, I took it then and I would take it again right now. <laughs> right now, Anna. It, really? It was going on right now, yes. But couldn't you do that? Do you go to Burning Man? I mean, isn't that the adult equivalent? Uh, it's, it's, there are elements at Burning Man which are wonderful. And I've been to Burning Man lots of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's an incredible event, an amazing uh, outpouring of, of, of really of creativity mm-hmm. is what Burning Man's about. The Grateful Dead in that scene had different vitamins. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it. You know, it, it, it hit me on such a deep level and the music and the scene and the community. And of course, I'm 47 years old. You know, I was 16 years old. I was 16 through, you know, 28 years old when Jerry Garcia died. Mm-hmm. And that, that period of growing up, my youth was just, it was so beautiful and so exciting and so much fun. It, it fed me on so many levels. Mm-hmm. There was also a lot of darkness there as, t- as well. It's interesting. I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but it's almost like the community of 12-step. Like, you find this community, and I know for you, you know, you found that wasn't enough, but we're going to get to that in a second. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I grew up in Marin County. So okay. imagine the dead shows that everyone I knew went to. Oh, Yeah. Uh, at the supermarket, the local supermarket where we had an account, because it was a small, it, it went, it, it, they listed them in David, and then it was followed by Grateful Dead. They had like the account afterwards. Like the office was right down the street. <laughs> yeah. So, so everybody I knew went to dead shows all the time, and I wasn't into it. Right. Was not. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, a, it's truly a language. You know, if you spoke that language, you couldn't understand how someone else wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. If you didn't get it, you couldn't understand how somebody did get it. Mm-hmm. it. The Grateful Dead were like that. It's a weird, very weird language that a certain group of people spoke and other people didn't. And that's just sort of how it happened. I would say that people who were into pot and psychedelics seemed to speak that language more than those of us who were just into stimulants. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I would mm-hmm. say there, there was a certain gravity mm-hmm. there for, for people like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly pulled me in. And I can remember the first time I pulled up to a dead show and just saw the scene of people. And, and the first words out of my mouth were, where have all these people been? Mm-hmm. Where have they been hiding? Because mm-hmm. I've been looking for them. Mm-hmm. This is really what I've wanted. Where, where, where have you all been? Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's that neat search for community. And of course, we, we do find it in the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a powerful community. And I have found it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, I, I've also found it in the world of yoga yes. as well. There's a community there as well. So for sure, I, I've, been, I've been seeking transcendence. Mm-hmm. I've been seeking adventure. I've been seeking, lately, I've been seeking simplicity and calmness. Mm-hmm. Hard, hard to find mm-hmm. in, in Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've been seeking uh, community. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's findable in, in a lot of different places. 
Well, it's interesting. My therapist and I have talked about this. If uh, what we've talked about is how, you know, and I can only speak for myself, if I didn't as a child in my formative years get what I needed in order to set me up for success, the miracle of 12-step for me was that I was able to get it then. Hmm. You know, like, and, and like that is so moving to me. That's like hmm. something that was not going to be possible for someone like me. Were you a, you were, you were a teenager when you got sober? No, no, no I was 30. Okay, okay. So, yeah. I find that hard to believe even now. <laughs> How long are well, you sober? I'm 106 years. You're 106 years old? Yes. It's amazing. Yes. You are so well preserved. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's been, it'll be 14 years next month. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. So yeah, but, but, um, you know, I didn't get that that's what I was seeking. Yes. Cause I didn't think I liked people that much. Right. You know? Right. Um, so, okay, wait, so where did you go to boarding school, by the way? I went to Taft school in oh, Connecticut. Oh, you did? We, yes. I went to Trinity College in Connecticut, so okay. lots of Taft kids. Yep, yep. Lots of Taft kids like us, like the ones who didn't get into Ivy League school. <laughs> you know what I mean? That <laughs> was Trinity. Do I know what you mean? Yes, I know <laughs> what you mean. Most of the people in my family went to Yale. Uh-huh. And Yale University thought better of having me at their institution. <laughs> Harvard was my family's. They wrote my dad a letter to say I didn't get in before they wrote me. Right. You know? I, I do. I get it. <laughs> um, so, so what did you do instead? Uh, the University of Colorado was happy to have me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love it to this day. It was an amazing experience. And through my college years, through my college years, I got into serious. I had, I had the most extraordinary time of my life, 18, 19 dove straight down into the darkest drug period of my life at 20 and 21, got sober, came back, finished school as a sober person. That all happened in my college years in the University of Colorado. Later on, right after I graduated from college, I would relapse. I'd stay out for a year, sort of in, out, in, out, trying, but not trying, trying, but not trying. And then after that year was over, it was June 23rd, 1991, when I got mm-hmm. sober for the last time. I was in New York City at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, I walked into an AA meeting three days in a row, announcing that I had one day sober. And on the third day of announcing I have one day sober, this guy came up to me and he said, hey man, you know, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, uh, 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 uh. he's like, that's right. You don't know what your problem is. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're walking this world with untreated addiction. Mm -hmm. That's your problem. You're an untreated alcoholic addict. And you don't realize that you have a disease. Mm -hmm. You don't realize there's a treatment for this disease. And so therefore, you're not applying the treatment. And and that's your problem. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm going to be your sponsor now. Nice. He announced that to me. I've heard of people doing that. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I would never do that to someone, nor was that ever done to me. Right, right. No, I was, I was shocked because I understood that it, that was up to me to ask somebody. <laughs> but he was so convincing. I yeah. was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he took me to a meeting every day for 60 days. Wow. At which point I, I was already moving. I was going to move to San Francisco and I wasn't going to change. Stayed sober for 60 days with this guy, Neil. Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been sober since the day I met him. Is he still your sponsor? No, in fact, I don't know where he is. Wow. He was my sponsor. I mean, sponsor, we weren't working the steps. Okay, okay. We were just going to meetings. But that sounds like it saved your life. It's what it did, saved my life. Yeah. Saved my life. I got out to San Francisco and, and um, it, was, it happened to be the first day of the International Convention of Young People in AA, Ikipa, okay. was going on in San Francisco. I went to it, mm-hmm. picked up a sponsor right out of that event, 
And that guy was my, was my real sort of quote sponsor, Mm -hmm. got me sober, sober, Mm -hmm. worked through the steps, answered every question I had. I mean, every other word out of my mouth was no or why, Mm -hmm. you know, I just was a child again. And, and, uh, I, I really came to this program kicking and screaming, like there has to be another way. There has to be another way. And, and I, I, I looked for many, many other ways and I couldn't find another way. Mm -hmm. And the way of course was right back to the heart and, and the 12 steps took me there. Originally, that was mm-hmm. the first sort of place that I, I, I had that kind of a transformation where drugs and alcohol were not going to be a part of my life and it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that if I was going to really get to what I wanted to get to, which was to live an extraordinary life and to know what my potential could have been, to know what I could be, like that, I wanted to realize that in my life. I couldn't do it with drugs and alcohol. Right. Couldn't do it. So the 12 steps delivered on its promise. And, you know, we, we talk about the promises, in the, you know, which are, are stated in, the, in the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous around the ninth step. If you are painstaking you know, about this phase of your development, you will be amazed before, before you're halfway, halfway through. through. Yeah. Right. And all the other 11 promises after that that come, through, come there. But to me, it's just one promise. And it's the only promise that I wanted, really wanted, was I don't want to be thinking about using drugs or alcohol anymore. I don't want to even be thinking about it. Right. And that that came for me. I don't remember, honestly don't remember how long it took. Uh, maybe a couple years. A couple years into my recovery, maybe two or three years, somewhere in there, I woke up and I was like, I had the strangest feeling of freedom. I can't remember the last time I actually thought about using drugs and alcohol. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. when I last thought about it. It was that much of a non-issue. But two years is a long time to be thinking about it sober, I think. It could have happened before. Right. It's hard to tell. I don't remember. I just remember that at that point, I woke up and realized it had been a long time. Oh, I see. Since, you know, I I mean, it could have been, well, at the very beginning, like the first couple of months, it was tenuous. I'm like, all right, I kind of want to be sober now. Mm Mm-hmm. But am I going to be? Right. Before it was like, I'm not even sure I want to be sober. Right. I'm sort of like, I, anything could happen any day. Now I'm like, all right, I really actually want to be sober. What could happen that would pull me away from that goal any given day? Mm-hmm. What could actually happen? And you know, what happens is emotion, life, uh, commotion, mm-hmm. um, all, the th- all, the, all the triggers and the things and the habits that we've been engaged in start to happen. And one day at a time, you navigate that process. Something comes up. Here's a good one. I, I put it in my book. Um, uh, I, I, it was July one year, and I was thinking about going home for the holidays in December, mm-hmm. five months from then. And the thought was, wow, it's going to be really difficult to stay sober when I go home. Mm-hmm. And then the next thought was, well, I, I probably won't. Right. I, I mean, it's so for the holidays. I'll probably party in December. Right. And then the very next thought after that, of I course, is, start now. well, why bother, you know, making it to December? Yeah. Like we can get going right now. Right. Like, you know, there's no point in staying sober for six months. And so that kind of thinking was still in me. Right. And, you know, of course, what, what you do with that thinking is you bring it to your sponsor, you bring it to your home group, you bring it to a therapist, you bring it to anyone on your support team. And you say, what do you think of this thinking? You know, and any sane and sober person is going to look at you and say, you're batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. How about you bring it back into today? Mm-hmm. It's July right now. Mm-hmm. We're not in December yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you go to bed tonight without having used drugs and alcohol? And I was like, that I can handle. Yeah. 
So, um, I remember one of the first me who knows it was one of the first meetings who knows when I heard it, but it was early on where this woman said, shared about how she said, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to stay sober through my daughter's wedding. Like, I just can't imagine it. And, and somebody goes, my God, when is your daughter getting married? And she goes, well, she's three years old, (laughs) you know, like the most extreme version of that. But it's, it's so part of it is just not being able to stay in the moment. Yes. And then making that and deciding, why not start right now? That's right. You know? Uh, yeah. It's a great story. <laughs> it's true. Yes. It was amazing to we, hear. We do that. So, but so, you, you, all this happens, and yet, your story involves then some sort of very self-destructive behavior in sobriety. That's right. So I, I found out sort of through many years of being a sober person that you can put down your main drug of choice, uh, and still be mired in what I call the frequency of addiction, mm-hmm. which is sort of an, an energetic, let's just call it a force field. You can envision a, a force field that draws things to it. And when mm-hmm. you're in this force field, this frequency of addiction, it's going to draw addicted people, addictive thinking, addictive situations into your life. You're, you're literally drawing it in and you can't help it and you're not aware of it. That was me. Mm-hmm. So that took the form, basically three forms. So number one, cigarettes. So I've been athletic my whole life. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people that, that absolutely loves to smoke. I, sure, I enjoyed a cigarette now and then, but mostly I'd smoke. I did your cocaine thing where mm-hmm. I'd smoke two, throw the pack away, mm-hmm. go get the pack, mm-hmm. smoke two more, really throw the pack away, realize I can't get it back, go buy a new pack mm-hmm. and play that whole game like over mm-hmm. and over again. So really psychotic, a great waste of energy. Mm-hmm. And also, so, you know, smoking uh, disconnection with my lungs and my breath. So now that I'm a yoga teacher, I'm paying a lot of attention to my lungs and breath. Uh, in fact, it's the number one breath is the currency of transformation for me today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the process by which I change myself, my breath. So what a transformation that's been yeah. to get there from smoking cigarettes and you know previously smoking crack and marijuana and all the oh rest Oh my God, of it. we skipped crack. Let's just go back a minute. <laughs> so you go from cocaine and Drakeful Dead. When did the crack come in? Oh dear. Yeah, well, the, the, the crack cocaine came in in late 1987. Mm-hmm. About a year. It took me a year of snorting cocaine mm-hmm. before I advanced to the truly psychotic land of crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing crack cocaine, there's nothing to, um, there's no recreation left in, in what you're doing. Now you're, you're purely in this world of, uh, it's a really twisted world of desire and, and psychosexual behavior and, and control and, and just, just the darkest side of, of yeah. human existence is there. Not, not to mention just straight up psychosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I got to visit that land for a little while. It actually brought me to my knees and, and is part of the reason why I got sober. Um, but cocaine was, was so powerful for me, as I said, that the only thing that could break its grip on my nervous system was heroin. So that's when heroin entered for me. I never, I really wasn't in many respects what most people think of as a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. I actually wouldn't have chosen to do it on its own. I just, you know, in combination with cocaine, it was perfect. And how were you ingesting the heroin? Um, I was snorting it and smoking it. Mm-hmm. I never actually shot it either, um, which is a, obviously a great saving grace yeah. of my of my uh, addiction years. So, how long was the uh, crack and heroin use? Year and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
year and a, yeah, year and a half basically. Uh, once I got sober, even through my relapse, I only made it back to cocaine one time through that whole year of relapsing. One time, one awful, horrible night of smoking crack. Mm. And uh, it was all the research that was needed. Did you come back the next day after that or did it take some time? Um, I, I, I tried to get sober that next day. Um, my mom unfortunately died about two oh. years, two, uh, two months after that. Um, and that brought a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of emotion, a lot of grieving, a lot, a lot of, a lot of real hard sort of, uh, life stuff happened for me. So again, I was in and out, in and out until June when I finally got sober with Neil that time. And so, and so there you are smoking cigarettes, sober. Yep. And then. Yeah, I'm, I'm sober. Now I'm sober. I'm free of the drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm enjoying my life mostly. Mm-hmm. But, but interestingly, I'm carrying a lot of stress mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily notice. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll notice it when I get a headache or if I throw my back out mm-hmm. or something will happen. And, and I'm like, wow. You know, or, or when I get out into nature mm-hmm. and I realize the difference between how I've been, ha- been behaving in my normal life and how I'm behaving sitting here in this meadow in front of this tree. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I'm really off center. And I would come to those periods of realization, but not understand how bad it was, not understand that I was really disconnected from myself mm-hmm. and that I was living the life of an addict, even though I'd put down drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Second way that manifested for me, not just cigarettes, but also gambling. Mm-hmm. So I've had a, a weird relationship with money through my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I came from a family that was pretty well off, but there were some very strange controls and emotions around money. It was anything but clear. Right. So that's always been weird, and there's been a lot of weird emotions that went along with it. Um, so gambling was an outcropping. Not that I'm blaming my family for that, but my own sense of it was that I, I didn't think I had a way to bring abundance in my, into my own life. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I could support myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my way of dealing with those feelings was to go for the long shot. I was always shooting for the long shot. Somehow, you know, the payoff, right? I'll do this thing, even in my, in my job life, like I'd get involved in businesses that if they worked out, there'd be some unbelievable payoff down the road, mm-hmm. but I never had short-term security. Mm-hmm. So I was always creating more stress, more stress, more mm-hmm. stress. And I see a lot of people in recovery doing the same pattern. Um, so gambling, I was gambling, had a skewed relationship with money. And then of course, women. Wait, let's go back to the gambling. Can't wait to get to the women. But were you going to Vegas? Like what were you doing? Yeah. So the gambling for me took the form of Las Vegas or, or anywhere, anytime basically I entered the state of Nevada Mm -hmm. because keep in mind in the early nineties, while there was still gaming in other places in the country on, on Indian reservations, for example, it's nothing like it is now. And I, and I say to myself, like, thank God. God, yeah. I put gambling down because now it's everywhere. Right. I only got really into trouble. Well, I got into trouble every time I gambled, just like every time I did a line of cocaine. It never stopped, Anna. And I, I couldn't stop. And I'd, I'd borrow money from my friends. I'd <laughs> hit the credit cards, borrow money from the casino. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mr. Rosen, we're so glad to have you back. Yeah, but they were. Can we comp you a room? Can we get you free food? You mm-hmm. know, the whole trip. And uh, so I gambled and, and, and I won a lot of money at times, you know, but it was never about that, mm-hmm. never about winning money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to keep playing and keep feeling that buzz, that thing that was going on inside of me. But did you know that at the time, didn't you think it was about winning money? I did. 
Yeah. That's what I, that's my focus was. Oh, I have to, you know, we've I've got some financial problems. Go figure. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to solve them. And I'm I'm a smart guy. I can count cards mm-hmm. like the next guy and mm-hmm. and I'll take my crack at Vegas just like all these other poor deluded people that have come before me. Mm-hmm. So eventually um Vegas took its crack at me and kicked my ass. And I lost an incredible amount of money. But that wouldn't have been enough to stop me. What happened was I got home from a run in Vegas and my back left. My back just left. And what I mean by that is I was standing at a concert a few days after I'd gotten back from Las Vegas and this terrible pain started emanating from the middle of my lower back straight down my butt, my hips, my legs, all the way to my feet and I literally screamed, ow, out loud. And from that point, I was crippled for the next 10 months. Had you had back problems before that? Minor. You know, you throw, you throw your back out for a couple of days. Yeah. And then you can feel your back spasm. Yeah. And then it loosens up and then you're fine again. Not this. This was not a spasm. This was a, I, I didn't know what it was, but it felt like a severe uh, neurological, nerve-related disorder. And, and it, it actually turned out to be true. Right. Um, but the universe had gotten my attention. Mm-hmm. And long story short, what ended up happening was I went to every kind of healer in L.A., mm-hmm. and that is every kind of healer, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was just getting worse. Nothing would heal me. And that was just part of the problem. I was looking for something to heal me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I couldn't put it together in my mind. I was, at this point, 12 years sober. Mm-hmm. Couldn't put it together in my mind that my behavior had an effect on my body right? in such a way that, that one thing was related to the next, that my addictive behavior now had taken such a toll on my psyche, my mind, that now it was hitting my body. And the universe was pissed off at me. Mm-hmm. And, this, and the universe was like, you know, I, I say it all the time, the universe is not interested in your personal comfort. Mm-hmm. You know? But it's interested in your personal development. Yes, in teaching you lessons yes. that you need. I had, to, I had to take a real ass whooping. And so... What ended up happening, I went to Cedar sinai uh, and they gave me an MRI. They read the MRI. They said, you have severe degenerative disc disease, and we're going to have to manage your pain for the rest of your life, and eventually you're going to be on the table. You look mm-hmm. for surgery. And I'm 35 years old at this mm-hmm. point, and I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, drugs for the rest of my life, surgery. Like, what is going on here? It was a very, very, very dark time for me in yeah. my life, and... That week, a friend came up to me and said, you know, Tommy, if you really want to fix your back, you should go see this guy named Guru Prem. Guru Prem. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go see some guru. Right. I'm not doing the guru thing. I've been to everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I'm tired. I, I'm, I'm in trouble, but I, I'm not doing the guru thing. I can see the beard and the turban and the mm-hmm. whole deal. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. won't do it. That very night, my wife and I went out to dinner and there was a woman at the table next to ours. She strikes up a conversation with us. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I just got to Los Angeles. And we're like, oh, well, welcome. You know, what brings you here? And she's like, I came to see this man named Guru Prem. <laughs> Same night. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I take the hint and I call Guru Prem and I say, uh, Guru Prem, apparently I'm supposed to come see you. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, we better get you in here then. He's here in L.A.? Here in L.A. 
He's in Beverly Hills where all the gurus are, <laughs> right? <laughs> so any any self-respecting guru has I an office. I thought they were all in Venice with you. Uh, some of them are in Venice. I think I think the, the guru prems of the world are not. Mm-hmm. So. so I went to his office. It was a Wednesday at noon in December 2003. Mm-hmm. He opened the door and it was exactly what I had envisioned. Mm-hmm. White turban, salt and pepper beard, glasses white robes, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. And I'm literally inside. I'm like, holy shit. I can't believe it's come to this. Mm -hmm. You know, I walk in his office and I, and all he's got in there is a, a a little desk, another little desk. And on the floor is a yoga mat. So he sits on one end of the yoga mat facing me and I'm on the other end of the yoga mat facing him. And he's just got this big smile on his face. Mm -hmm. And I can't explain it. Like I wasn't cured. I was in a lot of pain, but in this man's presence, I knew I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how. I didn't know how long. But I could tell that there was going to be a way through for me. And it turned my life. From that moment, it just changed my whole life. That was, as I said, December 2003. In 90 days, working with him and a chiropractor and doing a digestive tract cleanse to really clean out things I'd been holding on to since my childhood. Mm-hmm. My back pain went away. And here we are 11 years later. I've, I've never had drugs, no surgery. Wow. I, I'm, I practice and teach yoga. I'm mm. 100% in my body and love it. And um, I've gotten an opportunity to, to look at life through a, a whole new lens. And so I was gifted with the world of the Grateful Dead when I needed it. Mm-hmm. I was gifted with recovery mm-hmm. when I needed it the most. Mm-hmm. I was gifted with the 12-step path, which helped to, to lift me out of addiction. And then I was gifted with Guru Prem, who helped me to create this thing called Recovery 2.0. Right. And that's what the book is about. And, and it's all about the breath and uh, looking at life uh, through, a, through a new lens, of, a lens of yoga and meditation and healthy diet and really asking yourself the key questions like, you know, let's, let's really actually ask the question, why am I here? Mm-hmm. Rather than that, have that be such an impossible question to answer, let's actually delve into that a little bit. And I found out that I'm here to share and to teach, but also to learn and uh, to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, like everybody, like you and like everybody, I've got innate gifts, which I can, if I'm aligned well in my life, I can use my gifts to be of benefit to myself and to another human being. Right. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. I never got that before. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know what my innate gifts were. Mm-hmm. But Guru Prem turned my lens inward and said, you will not find it out here. Mm-hmm. You turn your lens inward. And he showed me how to do that. And he taught me the breathing techniques that I would need to grow and to strengthen my nervous system, to rebuild Everything, all the damage that I had done, mm-hmm. not just in the, in the severe drug-using days, but in these 12 years since my drug-using mm-hmm. days, all the gambling and the stress and the psychosis and the, just all the pain and the suffering of being a human being who's out of alignment, I was that. Right. I was that 12 years into my recovery. And, and, it, and it's unnecessary. If you're on the path of recovery, you don't have to be waiting 12 years of... of, of you know, other addictive behaviors until you finally get your ass whooped and find Guru Prem. Right. Like you can do it right now. Although, isn't it, doesn't it take a bottoming out for any of us to change? Um, I don't think so. Really? I don't think to so. To find the motivation? Mm. 
So I feel that um, this idea of a bottom, like Guru Prem helped me to redefine that. Mm -hmm. And he would say, a bottom is just the moment at which you're willing to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So at what point have I been willing to tell the truth recently? So, okay, when I was smoking crack cocaine and doing heroin, I didn't have the awareness to be able to know what the truth or the lie was. Had no ability to tell the difference. I was gifted with, with a bottom. And the bottom was, I have no other move than to get help. Right. Okay. Flash forward 12 years. Once again, I was humbled. I was humbled in this case because, not because I'd lost all that money. Like I wouldn't, like I said, I would have gone back to Vegas. Mm-hmm. I was humbled because there was a, a situation that was presented to me for which I had no solution. Mm-hmm. I couldn't move. My body had given up on me at 35 years old. That got my attention. It humbled me and it allowed me to tell the truth. And the truth simply was, I need help. Now, I don't have to get to that point anymore. Right. I've learned. I'm a, I'm a, let me put it this way. I wouldn't call myself a wise person. Mm-hmm. I would say I have become wiser. Mm-hmm. And now I'm understanding, like, you can teach me a lot just by me listening to you and looking at your experience. Mm-hmm. Same with other people who are along a path of mm-hmm. spirituality. I believe I can learn from anybody. Right. So now, for example, um, let's say, uh, what's, the, what's the struggle for me? So right now I'm... I'm I'm, I've just released my book. Yes. There's a lot going on. Yes. It's a stressful time. I can lose my temper a lot mm-hmm. and, and like just feel a sense of being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Well, I catch myself before it comes into my body and I'll do something like, all right, Tommy, you're going to yoga class now and you're going to sweat out and move out and breathe out that stress mm-hmm. and bring yourself back to a, sen- a place of centeredness. It's a tool that I have so I don't have to get to a bottom. Right. I also can speak to Guru Pram or, or Anna David or, mm. or anybody and say, mm-hmm. hey, here's what's going on for me. And I know that you're somebody that's dealt with this as well. What do you got for me? Mm-hmm. And I can actually humble myself and listen. Mm-hmm. And so that's my, that's my opportunity to be a student. Mm-hmm. I, in the past, go figure, I wasn't such a great student all mm-hmm. the time. And while I was aware in some ways in, in recovery, obviously I had some pretty powerful blind spots. Now... I'm learning how to not get into a situation where I'm cornered and have to reach a bottom and get my ass actually absolutely kicked. Now, at 23 years sober, I can actually learn from other people's mistakes right? rather than have to make my own. Right, right. And that's wisdom. Yes. That's wisdom. So I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm coming to it. <laughs> you know, maybe at 43 years sober. <laughs> I don't know. I consider you pretty wise, not just wiser, you know, and, and it's so interesting, this backstory, just because as I was telling you when you walked in, so this is the crucial role you've played in my life. Mm. You know, so we were in touch, you know, we were talking about doing various things together and then, you know, everything fell apart for me. I, you know, financially I had come off these two very abusive work situations and I just kept taking it and taking it and taking it. And then one day, mm-hmm. after taking a train to San Francisco and back, I fell. I, I mean, standing, 
And I was like, oh, what's that pain in my leg? And thus began like six months of, you know, sometimes in bed, basically not paralyzed as being traumatic, but like what you talked about Mm. where, you know, I tried everything. I was in too much pain to use crutches, you know, and I went to every guru and every Mm. doctor and got every, you know, pain treatment. And um, during that period, I came up with this idea of starting this thing called After Party. Mm. And And I was like, Tommy's gonna do this with me. He's the guy who makes things happen. And so I said, like, can, can we meet up or whatever? And you said, that's fine. Come to my house. And I came over and I was, st- I don't know if you remember how much pain I was still physically in. I do. We, we sat outside. We sat outside. Yep, yep. Your wife was shooting uh, videos inside. Yep, yep. And, um, and I just looked at your life and I go, God, this is so, lo- look mm. at this beautiful life this mm. man has. You know, I'll never have a life this beautiful. Mm. And he's got, he's got a come in and save me from this situation here. I didn't really know you very well. And, and I said to you, you know, I gave you the whole pitch. I was like, I don't, I'm not, I'm putting this thing together. And I remember you said to me, you don't need me. You can do this on your own. And nobody had said that to me. Mm. And um, you have, and I have, but I, and I remember you saying, you know, talking to me about the breathing and saying, you know, you're going to keep having physical problems unless you, unless you can learn this. Mm. And, you know, and my, my, sciatica did go away i too have bulging discs and disintegrated Mm. discs and all these problems but you know knock on wood i've been pain-free i love it yeah love it yeah well i I was just being me yeah and you were you came humble humbly yes and said here's the situation and so i mean this is how we're we're there for each other and that's 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 the the miracle of what we're doing yeah Uh, i'm so glad that i could be of some use you know that's nice yeah yeah, it was really it was really monumental. Just that day, I remember so well. It was the same day. I think driving over to, to, to your house, I was talking on the phone to a friend, and I said, "You know, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this life anymore. I'm trying to do this work thing. It's not going to work out. I can't believe it." And I remember she said to me, "You know, the director Tony Scott jumped off a bridge. You get that, right? You get that it's not about this work thing." And I was like, and it just I remember just stopping and going. Oh my God, maybe she's right. Maybe it's not about this external stuff. Right. You know? Isn't it incredible? We're all, we're all going to learn our lessons. Yeah. Sooner or later. I really, uh, I, I mean, the visual I have is, you know, my higher power, if I'm going to personify that, I, I see it really as energy, but let's say I personify it for a minute. I'll, I, I have this vision of my higher power just basically like, look, Tommy, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, you know? Mm-hmm. It makes absolutely no difference to me. <laughs> like, I'm not in a body. Right. I'm not stuck with time. I, I'm not, like, dealing with past, present, and future. You are. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to give you all the signs I possibly can to move you along your path. And you can either choose to listen or not listen. Right. And if you'll do these practices, I notice that it'll actually improve your hearing and your sight and your vision. If you do these practices, you'll be able to hear me more clearly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like what I said to everybody. What are you waiting for? Right. And, and what we're waiting for is we're waiting for something that we actually believe in. I believe in this because I've had, I've, I've been, it's been shown to me. I don't, I don't guess as to whether yoga is helpful. I don't guess as to whether, you know, m- my breath is connected to my, um, the level of addictive chatter in my mind. I know, I know what's there. So I just simply on a mission to tell people, if you're going to bother going to this trouble of being a, a sober and sane and, uh, you know, clean or whatever your word for that. If you're going to go without drugs and alcohol in this world in 2014, you had better have a practice right. and not just the 12 steps, 12 steps. Yes. Fundamentally do that first and, and, and have that be the foundation of your spiritual experience. 
also add in the yoga and the meditation, these other pieces, and then you, you've got, a, you've got a, a combination of factors that are just going to propel you forward. Mm-hmm. You can't help but grow. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. So, okay, so let's talk about the recovery too. So you said, I need to teach other people about this, what I've learned, and I'm going to call it recovery 2.0. Mm. Well, not, not, not exactly, okay. uh, but you know, Correct my, me. <laughs> my, my work with Guru Prem, uh, he was always pretty clear because Guru Prem, uh, his teacher is named Yogi Bhajan mm-hmm. and Yogi Bhajan was the man who brought Kundalini yoga over to the West from India and started teaching back in 1969. And he died, uh, Yogi Bhajan died in 2004, mm-hmm. right after I met his student, Guru Prem. Wow. But Yogi Bhajan used to say, I, you know, I'm not here to create uh, students. I'm here to create teachers. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't about trying to create this like world of where people were like his students. He was trying to empower people to go out. And basically, I mean, it's perfect for the world of, for this, this world we walk in, which is recovery. We're trying to create sponsors. We're trying to create people who can uplift another human being. It's exactly the same in the tradition of Kundalini Yoga. Mm-hmm. So you train somebody in these, these yogic technologies, if you will, and you, you're not training them so you can control them as a teacher. You're training them so that they are liberated as a, as a person who can now go out and teach in their own right and, and share. So Guru Prem was always clear about this from the beginning. He never said, well, Tommy, you have to be a teacher. It was never, that's not how he communicates. He would say something, I might say to him, you know, Guru Prem, do you think it would be a good use of my time to take the Kundalini Yoga teacher training? Mm -hmm. And like he would stop everything he was doing, look me right in the eyes and say, I think that would be a very good use of your time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was like his way, you know, of like making sure that I got that that's a direction he would like me to go. And I, of course, was like, okay. So... Once you go through the Kundalini Yoga teacher training, which is a 10-month training uh, and a very, very profound and powerful thing to do, um, basically, you're, you're shown your own... Uh, we'll get into some esoteric stuff here a little bit, but you're basically shown your own divinity, that you are, you are actually perfect, and the problem has been that you have had a lot of layers of trauma and suffering and personality and ego put on top of what you really are. Mm-hmm. And the process of clearing away all those layers is really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. The 12 steps is good at that. Yoga, Kundalini yoga is great at that. And the combination of all these things, we're just trying to see ourself. When you really see the self, and I mean self with a capital S, like your true self, like I could say to you, Anna, Satnam. Satnam means truth is your identity. Mm-hmm. Capital T, truth, meaning in you is a, is a truth that never changes. Now, as amazingly beautiful as you are, God bless you. knowing that we're all going to get older, our body, our body can't possibly be the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not the ultimate truth of who we are because the body's going to change. But there's something, there's a piece of you that will never change. Right. It's, I just think of it like a, like a diamond in the center of your being. And it's beautiful and amazing, and it has this this um, vitality and this radiance, and all of us are really just working on feeling that. Mm-hmm. When we're in connection with that, you cannot be beaten. 
you cannot, there's no such thing as addiction in mm-hmm. your life. There's no such thing as relapse. There's no such thing as, as suffering. Mm-hmm. There's just the experience of being a human being. Yes, you will grieve. We're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yes, you'll, you'll have good days and bad days. You're supposed to. But you're in touch with that innermost piece of yourself, which never changes, which is beautiful and perfect. Mm-hmm. That got shown to me. And then it was like, and that, that was sort of why I couldn't raise my hand anymore and say, my name's Tommy, I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. Or my name's Tommy, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Because while that had been true on a certain level, and while I needed to identify as that, it literally no longer held as true. Mm-hmm. How could I be that? That's not the truth of me. Mm-hmm. But I could say, my name's Tommy and I experience addiction. Mm-hmm. Or my name's Tommy and I've recovered from alcoholism mm-hmm. or from addiction. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I'm a person in long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. It, it's a difference between identifying yourself as the disease mm-hmm. versus identifying as somebody who has experienced it. Mm-hmm. I know what this is like. Right. And, and, I, and, and I don't ask that anybody else change what they say in a meeting. Everybody's say what you, what you feel. Mm-hmm. But I, I just came to a place where I couldn't say that this. and have it be true. anymore. it wasn't true for me anymore. So, okay. But so recovery 2.0, it starts with, um, you don't call it a webinar, an online presentation. What do you call that? The, oh, the conferences, the conferences. So we have, we have online conferences. We have, um, I'm launching my first coaching program mm-hmm. on December 1st. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take uh, as many people as want to join us through the holidays and two months beyond it. We're going to do 90 and 90 together mm-hmm. uh, from December 1st through March 1st. Mm-hmm. And what that's going to look like is I'm going to be on the phone. On We're going to be doing some uh, teleconferencing and we're also going to do some uh, live interactive web stuff together mm-hmm. to coach each other through the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, through the challenges there. So we're going to get ahead of this whole New Year's resolution thing. Mm -hmm. Our our resolutions are going to be written and we're only going to be living them into Mm -hmm. the New Year. Mm -hmm. So I've always felt that was ridiculous. Like, let's decide on January 1st what we're going to do on January 2nd. I was like, how about we decide on December 1st what we're going to do on January 2nd and we practice it for 30 days first. Right, right, right. So we're going to do all that practice. We're going to give everybody a, a, a sadhana, a morning spiritual practice that we're all going to do together and be accountable to each other. We're going to look at this thing called breathing, mm-hmm. yoga, meditation. We're going to do a deep dive into relationships and love. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about ladies, but it's that's true. That's it's okay. true. And we're going to um, we're going to do a, a deep dive into our relationship with money mm-hmm. and our relationship with food, mm-hmm. and really help people get through that that piece of the challenge through the holidays because that's obviously a, a big issue. That's amazing. And so people can just go to TommyRosen.com to we're find gonna, out. About- we're going to announce the course. Uh, they'll have people will have basically I think two two weeks to sign up for the course from when we announce it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, I, I'm not much, I, I love the idea of marketing in the sense of communicating something of value, but I really don't believe this is something that we have to push people into. I doubt if you, if you, if you want the support, it's going to be there for you. It's, there is a price tag attached to it, but mm-hmm. it's very affordable. Mm-hmm. And, um, boy, oh boy, I can't think of a better way to go into a new year and really set yourself up for an awesome year. Well, and, and I mean, you pull the, pull these off is the wrong expression. You produce these at such us. I mean, I'm so impressed. Like I, I'm a, I'm a go getter. I make things happen, but the way you do it, like when I was a part of recovery 2.0, the emails I got from that were better than the emails I get about 
after party. <laughs> I had a woman, this like very accomplished musician in somewhere in Europe who wanted to put what I, what you and I talked about to music. Cause she'd done that with Gabor Mate stuff. Wow. <laughs> I mean like crazy, amazing thing. That's cool. Thank you. Oh yeah. It was Thank amazing. You. And now you've done it. I think two more times since. Is yes. that right? Three yeah. altogether. We're three altogether. And we're, we're coming up on our fourth. Our fourth one will be January 14th through 18th. Mm-hmm. We'll do our, our fourth recovery 2.0 conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, super excited. We've, um, let's see, God, we have Dr. Drew who's going to come on this time. Amazing, great. Amazing. And um, it's, an, it's an incredible list of 25 people. Yeah, well, and you've had Gabor Mate several times. He's coming back again. Great. We, and uh, didn't you have Richard Branson? Am I making that up? No, no, we did. We did. Richard did a, he did a short uh, introduction to our first one. Uh, first or so, I think our first one. So nice of him. He did about a 10-minute introduction and, and gave some of his thoughts about the war on drugs, mm-hmm. which is a, a near and dear cause of his. Um, but yeah, the, I'm most excited. Uh, well, of course, the conference is going to be amazing. I'm thrilled for it. And um, I'm most excited about the, um, the coaching program mm-hmm. because um, what, a, what an opportunity for community. And while it is online, it's sort of like a lot of us are spending a lot of our time there. Mm-hmm. So let's spend time uh, online and, and in connection with each other. Right. And uh, I'm going to do a, a free webinar about it, um, I think, on the 13th of November. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 13th of that, November. You know what? This is going to post right around then. So guys, go sign up. Free. Cool. Free stuff. It's pretty amazing. Everyone loves free stuff. Yeah. Okay, now we're running out of time, but please let's get into the book. So you write the book. I yeah. remember you were writing the book back that day I sat in your backyard. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. you you got a book deal. Yeah. Called it Recovery 2.0. Yep. And wrote. Yes. Everything you knew. Yes. Hay House. Yes. Uh, Hay House is the publisher. Uh, I wrote a first draft with an editor that I had hired. Mm-hmm. Um, submitted the first draft to Hay House. They, we went back and forth for about, uh, God, it was like a four to six month period Mm -hmm. of, of getting it to final, final form, the form it's in now. Mm -hmm. Very much like the construction of a building. The building is like a disaster and it looks like a disaster until the final, you know, external touches are put on it. Mm -hmm. When the book was like 99% done, I was like, I couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, did I? Have I said the right things in the right way? Is is it going to you know impact? And is it what I wanted to say? Mm-hmm. I can never take this back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going out there like oh my god. But when it was a hundred percent done, and I got the the galleys, I got the galleys, and I, and I read I read my book for the first time. Two sensations happened. One was I I knew that it was good in the sense of it was what I wanted to say. How people will react to it, I can't control any of that. But I knew that it was good that I expressed myself. Mm-hmm. And that was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing was there were lar- many, many, many passages in the book. I couldn't bring myself to, to believe that I had written them. Mm-hmm. I do not remember writing much of this book. So I don't know what part of the brain or what kind of download happens there or what the deal is. I, this thing came through me. It mm-hmm. wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Much of it is, is like I don't remember. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like... One paragraph in particular, I remember thinking, Jesus, that's good. <laughs> like, you know, who the hell wrote that? Right. <laughs> who wrote that? Right. How did that happen? Um, so uh, the book's broken down into four parts. The first part is uh, really looking at the past and the roots of addiction, family history, environmental history, food history. Food is a big piece of this book. Second part of the book is a deep dive into the 12 steps, mm-hmm. looking at it from a yoga 
teacher's perspective. Um, it's really uh, best practices for getting through the 12 steps and, and avoiding some pitfalls, mm-hmm. mining some of the, the spiritual wisdom that's in there, mm-hmm. talking a little bit about the fellowship and how to navigate that. And then the third uh, part of the book is, all right, so now you're sober. It's just like, like what we spoke about, the frequency of addiction. Mm-hmm. Life is going to happen. Relationships are going to be challenging. Your relationship with food or money might be challenging, or your relationship with women might be challenging, or men, uh, depending on you know, your sex or your sexual preference. What, life is going to happen to mm-hmm. you in recovery. What do you do? Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that? And then the fourth part of the book is all the practices. It's the upgrade. It's recovery 2.0. Right. All the practices. Here's what you do when life happens. Here's the next level. Here are the things you can do to take it all the way mm-hmm. and to come and meet your own heart mm-hmm. in a way that you maybe haven't even imagined possible. Yeah. And people, the response has been amazing. Oh my God. It's been, it's been, it's been overwhelming, overwhelming for me. And you're it's doing beautiful. like a nationwide tour or are you? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not much of a nationwide tour it yet. It looks pretty nationwide to me when we I looked at We did eight cities, uh-huh. eight, eight cities. So we did, we did Miami, um, New York, Boston, uh, Los Angeles. We're doing San Francisco soon, uh, Pasadena and, um, Orange County. Mm-hmm. And then we're starting to get requests from a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So what we've decided to do, and this is uh, exciting, I'm, I'm, I'm really seeing you be a part of this in some way, shape, oh, or form. Oh, can't wait. Get, get scared. Be scared. I'm, <laughs> be I'm <afraid>. only excited. <laughs> um, we're thinking about getting a bus uh-huh. and doing a 30-city recovery 2.0 tour oh in God. the summertime. That's awesome. Where we show up, we, we have live musicians, uh-huh. we have yoga and meditation going on, uh-huh. and, and a 12-step meeting, mm-hmm. universal 12-step meeting. Uh, in every city that we go to. And so we'll be stopping in high schools and colleges and, and treatment centers and yoga studios. And we'll get a lot of press along the way and mm-hmm. just sort of do this Recovery 2.0 tour thing. And it's like your dead tour. It is. You know? Thank you. As an adult. Thank you. Healthy. <laughs> it's good. Well, okay, that's a great note to end on, Tommy. I cannot thank you enough for doing mm. this. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Anna. Okay, did that or did you not, did that not make you feel like, do I breathe right? Do I breathe right? I sure hope I breathe right. That and other things. An inspiring guy, Tommy Rosen. So keep listening. Go check out Tommy Rosen. Become a part of Recovery 2.0. Keep reviewing the podcast. I love you. I'll talk to you next week.